Volume 2, Part 10 of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Leeson. Histories, Volume 2, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Volume 2, Part 10. All this Otanes achieved when he had been made governor. After only a short period of time without evils, trouble began once more to come on the Ionians, and this from Naxos and Miletus. Naxos surpassed all the other islands in prosperity, and at about the same time Miletus, at the height of her fortunes, was the glory of Ionia. Two generations before this, however, she had been very greatly troubled by factional strife, till the Parians, chosen out of all the Greeks by the Milesians for this purpose, made peace among them. The Parians reconciled them in the following manner. Their best men came to Miletus, and seeing the Milesian households sadly wasted, they said that they desired to go about the country. They then made their way through all the territory of Miletus, and whenever they found any well-tilled farm in the desolation of the land, they wrote down the name of the owner of that farm. After traveling over the whole country and finding only a few such men, they assembled the people immediately upon their return to the city and appointed as rulers of the state those whose lands they had found well tilled. This they did in the belief that these men were likely to take as good care of public affairs as they had of their own, and they ordained that the rest of the Milesians who had been found at feud should obey these men. It was in this way that the Parians made peace in Miletus, but now these cities began to bring trouble upon Ionia. Certain men of substance, who had been banished by the common people, went in exile to Miletus. Now it chanced that the deputy ruling Miletus was Aristagoras, son of Molpagoras, son-in-law and cousin of that Histius, son of Lysagoras, whom Darius kept with him at Susa. Histius was tyrant of Miletus, but was at Susa when the Naxians, who had been his guests and friends, arrived. When the Naxians came to Miletus, they asked Aristagoras if he could give them enough power to return to their own country. Believing that he would become ruler of Naxos if they were restored to their city with his help, and using as a pretext their friendship with Histius, he made them this proposal. I myself do not have the authority to give you such power as will restore you against the will of the Naxians who hold your city, for I know that the Naxians have eight thousand men that bear shields, and many ships of war. Nevertheless, I will do everything I can to realize your request. This is my plan. Artaphrenes is my friend, and he is not only Hystaspes' son and brother to Darius the king, but also governor of all the coastal peoples of Asia. He accordingly has a great army and many ships at his disposal. This man, then, will, I think, do whatever we desire. Hearing this, the Naxians left the matter for Aristagoras to deal with as best he could, asking him to promise gifts and the costs of the army, for which they themselves would pay, since they had great hope that when they should appear off Naxos, the Naxians would obey all their commands. The rest of the islanders, they expected, would do likewise, since none of those Cycladic islands was as yet subject to Darius. 
Aristagoras came to Sardis and told Artaphernes that Naxos was indeed an island of no great size, but that it was otherwise a beautiful and noble island lying near Ionia. Furthermore, it had a store of wealth and slaves. Therefore send an army against that country, he said, and bring back the men who have been banished from there. If you so do, I have a great sum of money at your disposal, over and above the costs of the force, for it is only fair that we, who bring you, should furnish that. Furthermore, you will win new dominions for the king, Naxos itself, and the islands which are its dependents, Paros, Andros, and the rest of those that are called Cyclades. Making these your starting point, you will easily attack Euboea, which is a great and wealthy island, no smaller than Cyprus and very easy to take. A hundred ships suffice for the conquest of all these. This plan which you set forth, Artaphernes answered, is profitable for the king's house, and all your advice is good, except as regards the number of the ships. Not one hundred, but two hundred ships will be ready for you when the spring comes. The king, too, however, must himself consent to this. When Aristagoras heard that, he went away to Miletus in great joy. Artaphernes sent a messenger to Susa with the news of what Aristagoras said, and when Darius himself, too, had consented to the plan, he equipped two hundred triremes and a very great company of Persians and their allies in addition. For their general he appointed Megabates, a Persian of the Achaemenid family, cousin to himself and to Darius. This was he whose daughter, if indeed the tale is true, Pausanias, the Lacedaemonian, son of Cleombrotus, at a later day betrothed to himself, since it was his wish to possess the sovereignty of Hellas. After appointing Megabates general, Artaphernes sent his army away to Aristagoras. Then Megabates, bringing Aristagoras from Miletus, the Ionian army, and the Naxians, pretended to be sailing to the Hellespont, but when he came to Chios, he put in with his ships at Caucasa, so that he might cross with a north wind to Naxos. Since it was not fated that the Naxians were to be destroyed by this force, the following things took place. As Megabates was making his rounds among the ship's watches, it chanced that there was no one on the ship of Mindus. Megabates, very angry at this, ordered his guards to find the captain of this ship, whose name was Skylax, and thrust him partly through an oar-hole of the ship, and bound him there so that his head was outside the ship and his body inside. When Skylax had been bound, someone brought word to Aristagoras that his Mindian friend was bound and being disgracefully treated by Megabates. Aristagoras then went and pleaded with the Persian for Skylax, but since he obtained nothing that he requested, he went and released the man himself. When Megabates learned this, he took it very badly and was angry at Aristagoras. Aristagoras, however, said, But you, what have you to do with these matters? Did not Artaphernes send you to obey me and to sail wherever I bid you? Why are you so meddlesome? This response on the part of Aristagoras enraged Megabates, who, when night fell, sent men in a boat to Naxos to tell the Naxians of the trouble in store for them. Now the Naxians had no suspicion at all that it was they who were to be attacked by that force. However, when they learned the truth, they immediately brought inside their walls all that was in their fields, stored both meat and drink in case of a siege, and strengthened their walls. 
The Naxians then made all preparations to face the onset of war. When their enemies had brought their ships over from Chios to Naxos, it was a fortified city that they attacked, and for four months they besieged it. When the Persians had exhausted all the money with which they had come, and Aristagoras himself had spent much beside, they built a stronghold for the banished Naxians, and went off to the mainland in poor spirits, since still more money was needed for the siege. Aristagoras had no way of fulfilling his promise to Artaphernes, and he was hard-pressed by demands for the costs of the force. Furthermore, he feared what might come of the failure of the army and Megabates' displeasure against him. It was likely, he thought, that his lordship of Miletus would be taken away from him. With all these fears in his mind, he began to plan revolt, for it chanced that at that very time there came from Susa Histius' messenger, the man with the marked head, signifying that Aristagoras should revolt from the king. Since Histius desired to give word to Aristagoras that he should revolt and had no other safe way of doing so because the roads were guarded, he shaved and branded the head of his most trustworthy slave. He waited till the hair had grown again, and as soon as it was grown, he sent the man to Miletus with no other message except that when he came to Miletus, he must bid Aristagoras shave his hair and examine his head. The writing branded on it signified revolt, as I have already said. This Histius did because he greatly disliked his detention at Susa, and fully expected to be sent away to the coast in the case that there should be a revolt. If, however, Miletus remained at peace, he calculated that he would never return there. With this intent, then, Histius sent his messenger, and it chanced that all these things came upon Aristagoras at one and the same time. He accordingly took counsel with the members of his faction, stating his own opinion as well as the message which had come to him from Histius. All the rest spoke their minds to the same effect, favoring revolt, with the exception of Hecatius the historian, who, listing all the nations subject to Darius and all his power, advised them that they should not make war on the king of Persia. When, however, he failed to persuade them, he counseled them that their next best plan was to make themselves masters of the sea. This, he said, could only be accomplished in one way, Miletus, he knew, was a city of no great wealth, namely, if they took away from the temple at Bronchidae the treasure which Croesus the Lydian had dedicated there. With this at their disposal, he fully expected them to gain the mastery of the sea. They would then have the use of that treasure, and their enemies would not be able to plunder it. The treasure was very great, as I have shown in the beginning of my account. This plan was not approved, and they resolved that they would revolt. One out of their number was to sail to Maius, to the army which had left Naxos and was there, and attempt to seize the generals who were aboard the ships. Yatragoras, who had been sent for this very purpose, craftily seized Oliatus of Melassa, son of Ibinolus, Histius of Termera, son of Temnes, Keys, son of Erxandrus, to whom Darius gave Mytilene, Aristagoras of Syme, son of Heraclides, and many others besides. Then Aristagoras revolted openly, devising all he could to harm Darius. First he made the pretense of giving up his tyranny and gave Miletus equality of government so that the Milesians might readily join in his revolt. Then he proceeded to do the same things in the rest of Ionia. Some of the tyrants he banished, and as for those tyrants whom he had taken out of the ships that sailed with him against Naxos, 
he handed them each over to their respective cities, which he wished to please. Keys, when the Mytileneans received him, was taken out and stoned, but the Simeans, as well as most of the others, let their own man go. In this way, then, an end was made of tyrants in the cities. After doing away with the tyrants, Aristagoras of Miletus ordered all the peoples to set up governors in each city. Then he went on an embassy in a trireme to Lacedaemon, for it was necessary for him to find some strong ally. At Sparta, Anaxandrides, the son of Leon, who had been king, was now no longer alive, but was dead, and Cleomenes, the son of Anaxandrides, held the royal power. This he had won not by manly merit, but by right of birth. Anaxandrides had as his wife his own sister's daughter, and although he was content with her, no children were born to him. Since this was the case, the ephors called him to them and said, Even if you have no interest in caring for yourself, we cannot allow the house of Eurysthenes to perish. Therefore send away the wife that you have, seeing that she bears you no children, and wed another. If you do this, you will please the Spartans. Anaxandrides, however, said in response that he would do neither of these things, and that they were not giving him good advice in bidding him to get rid of his present wife, who was blameless, and to marry another. Then the ephors and the elders took counsel and placed this proposal before Anaxandrides. Since, as we see, you cling to the wife that you have, carry out our command and do not hold out against it, bearing in mind that the Spartans will certainly find some other way of dealing with you. As for the wife that you have, we do not ask that you send her away. Keep providing her with all that you give her now, and marry another woman in addition who can give you children. So they spoke, and Anaxandrides consented. Presently he had two wives and kept two households, a thing which is not at all customary in Sparta. After no long time the second wife gave birth to Cleomenes. She then gave the Spartans an heir to the royal power, and as luck would have it, the first wife, who had been barren before, conceived at that very time. When the friends of the new wife learned that the other woman was pregnant, they began to make trouble for her. They said that she was making an empty boast so that she might substitute a child. The ephors were angry, and when her time drew near, they sat around to watch her in childbirth because of their skepticism. She gave birth first to Doryaeus, then straightway to Leonidas, and right after him to Cleombrotus. Some, however, say that Cleombrotus and Leonidas were twins. As for the later wife, the mother of Cleomenes and the daughter of Prinitatus, son of Demarminus, she bore no more children. Now Cleomenes, as the story goes, was not in his right mind and really quite mad, while Doryaeus was first among all of his peers, and fully believed that he would be made king for his manly worth. Since he was of this opinion, Doryaeus was very angry when at Anaxandrides' death the Lacedaemonians followed their custom and made Cleomenes king by right of age. Since he would not tolerate being made subject to Cleomenes, he asked the Spartans for a group of people whom he took away as colonists. He neither inquired of the oracle at Delphi in what land he should establish his settlement, nor did anything else that was customary, but set sail in great anger for Libya with men of Thera to guide him. When he arrived there, he settled by the Sinips River in the fairest part of Libya, 
but in the third year he was driven out by the Macchi, the Libyans, and the Carcadonians, and returned to the Peloponnesus. There Antichares, a man of Elion, advised him, on the basis of the oracles of Laos, to plant a colony at Heraclea in Sicily, for Heracles himself, said Antichares, had won all the region of Eryx, which accordingly belonged to his descendants. When Doryaeus heard that, he went away to Delphi to inquire of the oracle if he should seize the place to which he was preparing to go. The priestess responded that it should be so, and he took with him the company that he had led to Libya and went to Italy. Now at this time, as the Sybarites say, they and their king Tellus were making ready to march against Croton, and the men of Croton, who were very much afraid, entreated Doryaeus to come to their aid. Their request was granted, and Doryaeus marched with them to Sybaris, helping them to take it. This is the story which the Sybarites tell of Doryaeus and his companions, but the Crotoniats say that they were aided by no stranger in their war with Sybaris, with the exception of Callias, an Elean diviner of the Yamid clan. About him there was a story that he had fled to Croton from Tellus, the tyrant of Sybaris, because as he was sacrificing for victory over Croton, he could obtain no favorable omens. This is their tale, and both cities have proof of the truth of what they say. The Sybarites point to a precinct and a temple beside the dry bed of the Crathus, which, they say, Doryaeus founded in honor of Athena of Crathus, after he had helped to take their city, and find their strongest proof, in his death. He perished through doing more than the oracle bade him, for if he had accomplished no more than that which he had set out to do, he would have taken and held the Erycene region without bringing about the death of himself and his army. The Crotoniats, on the other hand, show many plots of land which had been set apart for and given to Callias of Aelis, and on which Callias' posterity dwelt even to my time, but show no gift to Doryaeus and his descendants. They claim, however, that if Doryaeus had aided them in their war with Sybaris, he would have received a reward many times greater than what was given to Callias. This, then, is the evidence brought forward by each party, and each may side with that which seems to him to deserve more credence. Other Spartans too sailed with Doryaeus to found his colony, namely Thessalus, Paribates, Celias, and Eurylion. When these men had come to Sicily with all their company, they were all overcome and slain in battle by the Phoenicians and Egestans, all that is, except Eurylion, who was the only settler that survived this disaster. He mustered the remnant of his army and took Minoa, the colony from Selinus, and aided in freeing the people of Selinus from their monarch Pythagoras. After deposing this man, he himself attempted to become tyrant of Selinus, but was monarch there for only a little while, since the people of the place rose against him and slew him at the altar of Zeus of the marketplace, to which he had fled for refuge. Philippus of Croton, son of Butacides, was among those who followed Doryaeus and were slain with him. He had been betrothed to the daughter of Tellus of Sybaris, but was banished from Croton. Cheated out of his marriage, he sailed away to Cyrene, from where he set forth and followed Doryaeus, bringing his own trireme and covering all expenses for his men. This Philippus was a victor at Olympia and the fairest Greek of his day. 
for his physical beauty he received from the Egestans honors accorded to no one else. They built a hero's shrine by his grave and offer him sacrifices of propitiation. Such then was the manner of Doryeus' death. Had he endured Cleomenes' rule and stayed at Sparta, he would have been king of Lacedaemon, for Cleomenes reigned no long time, and died leaving no son, but one only daughter, whose name was Gorgo. It was in the reign of Cleomenes that Aristagoras the tyrant of Miletus came to Sparta. When he had an audience with the king, as the Lacedaemonians report, he brought with him a bronze tablet on which the map of all the earth was engraved, and all the sea, and all the rivers. Having been admitted to converse with Cleomenes, Aristagoras spoke thus to him, Do not wonder, Cleomenes, that I have been so eager to come here, for our present situation is such that the sons of the Ionians are slaves and not free men, which is shameful and grievous particularly to ourselves, but also of all others, to you inasmuch as you are the leaders of Hellas. Now, therefore, we entreat you by the gods of Hellas to save your Ionian kinsmen from slavery. This is a thing which you can easily achieve, for the strangers are not valiant men, while your valor in war is preeminent. As for their manner of fighting, they carry bows and short spears, and they go to battle with trousers on their legs and turbans on their heads. Accordingly, they are easy to overcome. Furthermore, the inhabitants of that continent have more good things than all other men together, gold first, but also silver, bronze, colored cloth, beasts of burden, and slaves. All this you can have to your heart's desire. The lands in which they dwell lie next to each other, as I shall show. Next to the Ionians are the Lydians, who inhabit a good land and have a great store of silver." This he said, pointing to the map of the earth which he had brought engraved on the tablet. Next to the Lydians, said Aristagoras, you see the Phrygians to the east, men that of all known to me are the richest in flocks and in the fruits of the earth. Close by them are the Cappadocians, whom we call Syrians, and their neighbors are the Cilicians, whose land reaches to the sea over there, in which you see the island of Cyprus lying. The yearly tribute which they pay to the king is five hundred talents. Next to the Cilicians are the Armenians, another people rich in flocks, and after the Armenians, the Matyeni, whose country I show you. Adjoining these you see the Sicyon land, in which, on the Coaspes, lies that Susa where the great king lives and where the storehouses of his wealth are located. Take that city, and you need not fear to challenge Zeus for riches. You should suspend your war, then, for strips of land of no great worth, for that fight with Messenians, who are matched in strength with you, and Arcadians and Argives, men who have nothing in the way of gold or silver, for which things many are spurred by zeal to fight and die. Yet, when you can readily be masters of all Asia, will you refuse to attempt it? Thus spoke Aristagoras, and Cleomenes replied, Milesian, my guest, Wait till the third day for my answer. At that time, then, they got so far. When, on the day appointed for the answer, they came to the place upon which they had agreed, Cleomenes asked Aristagoras how many days' journey it was from the Ionian Sea to the king. Till now, Aristagoras had been cunning and fooled the Spartan well, but here he made a false step. 
If he desired to take the Spartans away into Asia, he should never have told the truth, but he did tell it, and said that it was a three months' journey inland. At that Cleomenes cut short Aristagoras' account of the prospective journey. He then bade his Milesian guest depart from Sparta before sunset, for never, he said, would the Lacedaemonians listen to the plan if Aristagoras desired to lead them a three months' journey from the sea. Cleomenes went to his house after this exchange, but Aristagoras took a suppliant's garb and followed him there. Upon entering, he used a suppliant's right to beg Cleomenes to listen to him. He first asked Cleomenes to send away the child, his daughter Gorgo, who was standing by him. She was his only child, and was about eight or nine years of age. Cleomenes bade him say whatever he wanted and not let the child's presence hinder him. Then Aristagoras began to promise Cleomenes from ten talents upwards if he would grant his request. When Cleomenes refused, Aristagoras offered him ever more and more. When he finally promised fifty talents, the child cried out, Father, the stranger will corrupt you unless you leave him and go away. Cleomenes was pleased with the child's counsel and went into another room while Aristagoras departed from Sparta, finding no further occasion for telling of the journey inland to the king's palace. End of Volume 2, Part 10